0: Friends, it is Monday, August 28th, and Felix and I are joined today. Bye! it's my favorite time of year. It's Blowback Season 4. We are joined today by the co-hosts and creators of Blowback, Brendan James and Noah Colwyn. Gentlemen, welcome back. Hey, homies. Hey, guys. All right. Brendan, Noah, Blowback Season 4 just came out. You know, we got to get you on. This is probably, I listened to the first three episodes. This is probably like your, your, most, your season that is most ambitious in scope. And the, the story you've chosen to tell, the history that you're, you're digging into this season is sort of like the genesis of the term blowback, at least in its most you know a popular conception of like 9-11. So let me ask you, like, why Afghanistan? What, what drew you to this topic this time? And like, wh- wh- like, what did you begin to discover as you started researching this season?
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely the the most on the nose understanding of blowback. Probably is is at least for our generation, was, the term itself was coined by uh, a ex CIA guy, Chalmers Johnson, years ago. But as we've found every season, you know, sometimes it's 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 a punchy title uh, for the show. Sometimes we're talking about blowback. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're talking about something that is said to be blowback, but is a little bit more complicated. And then this is. Yeah, I think that, that really kind of um, uber example. And we wanted to to dive into it because really of the withdrawal in 2021. Uh, and it wouldn't just be about Afghanistan, this endless war, but it would be about a a somewhat uh, sort of um, beginning, middle, of and, and end now, for, at least for the time being of American involvement. And um, there's other reasons. I mean, we, we, we like to jump around. I like to jump around. We got to go to the 1980s. We've never really gotten to, cover that decade before in the show. uh, And we got to kind of follow all these colorful characters through a real 40 year saga, which as you say is like a longer period of time than we've ever tried to ever try to cover before. Uh,
0: I I, I can share with our listeners that if you are fans of the works of Hideo Kojima, (laughs) you will, you will not be disappointed by this season. And you know, the little, the little audio samples and drops you guys throw in there is incredible, but I guess like, uh, in, in the first episode, you sort of you lay out some some themes that are, are developed over the over the course of this season, and I guess the first one I want to talk about is the connection between political Islam and like jihad and Western intelligence services. Because like I know this, we don't need to get into that. You know, it sounds conspiratorial to say, but like, would fundamentalist Islam as a political movement? in Afghanistan or really anywhere else in the Middle in the Middle East. I know Afghanistan is in the Middle East, but like could you lay out like the connections between political, radical Islam and Western intelligence?
1: Yes. Um well I, I think it would be a stretch to say that it wouldn't exist um, you know, period end of sentence. There was a there's a long, you know, history up until that moment in the 1980s or late seventies of uh, political Islam growing in different parts of the world. I mean, you, you already had the Muslim Brotherhood existing for many decades, and writings that sort of changed and grew and become and became more uh, of a outright opposition to modernity and all of that. Sayyid Qutb and some stuff that I'm sure some some listeners are aware of. But as far as like a really contemporary version of political Islam, whose foot soldiers or commanders are still with us today. That was really, I think you could argue that was cooked up in that key period, and you know Noah and I. I mean, I know Noah could talk about the the Safari Club was the nexus of Western and uh, regional intelligence agencies that organized that um, that new strain, uh, or rather, channeled that new strain of political Islam. Uh, and Noah, you could probably you could probably speak on that a little bit.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you could think of. Uh- like at the same time that the process that we you know call globalization was unfolding, uh, one of the you know sort of new information streams that was you know going along uh, and traveling around the world in that time was uh you know like political Islam, in particular, sort of radical political Islam, and one of the sort of I guess superhighways, if you will, like that uh on which it traveled was this kind of route. Uh, between China uh, and Pakistan, and the United States, and uh, Africa, and even Southeast Asia, and the Safari Club in the 1970s was at the uh, sort of insistence of a French intelligence official, uh, Alexandre de Maranche. Uh What they did was uh, organ, like the, I believe it was na- it was named for a literal like 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 there there's a place. Uh, in other words, but you could
0: actually visit the Safari Club.
2: I mean, I I, I don't know if you can. I mean, I, I maybe they shoot you on site. I don't know. Is it like a big room with like zebra heads and, you know, stuff like that? I think of it as kind of like the um, Ben Gazzara's house uh, on the inside at the end of Roadhouse. <laughs> Roadhouse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where it's just like and there's like a big fat guy like waiting to get smothered by a big bear statue. Who are the members like this, of the Safari Club? So it's Saudi Arabia. It's Saudi Saudi Arabia. The United States. Uh, General Z is Pakistan, right, Brendan? Or is yeah? I mean, it's uh, a
1: it's a loose confederation. Sometimes people are showing up. Sometimes they're not. Uh, Saddam Hussein was said to be on the periphery of it. Um, But
2: yeah, you as as were Israel and South Africa, for example. I feel like yeah. I feel like
3: Saddam showing up there. That's sort of like uh, you know. An ob- obligatory uh, social uh, social thing, like going to your friend's one man show at
2: a DIY venue. <laughs> uh, S- Saddam, we got the, I got a good venue for my uh, my my quintet,
1: uh, my dance, and my cycle.
2: I'd really appreciate it if you could come.
1: But most of all, the Shah of of Iran was was our boy in the Middle East yes. at that time, and was um, while a secular dictator for the most part. He was just as interested in dicing it up uh, with with um, radical Islam in, uh, in, in his neighbors. Um, and the Shah was really our most before Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. He was our most uh, he was our heaviest hitter in Afghanistan because there was an increasingly progressive and um, eventually outright communist government in Afghanistan that was uh, not looking for the same, Uh, the same goals and the same allies that the Shah was. And so this group of this club, uh, which sounds very conspiratorial, but it's just admitted to by all these guys years later when they're like talking at Georgetown or you know doing a C-SPAN thing. And it's all those years ago. It's safe to say it now. It was really pulling the strings um, all along. And then by the time you get this Marxist revolution in in Afghanistan in the late 70s, which precipitates the Soviet uh, invasion, these guys are are really starting to recruit the warlords and the Mujahideen that we know um, and have loved ever since.
2: And it's also worth thinking about how, like, you know, the Shah, because he was our biggest boy, like, for example, I think like about a third of all American arms sales abroad in the 1970s went to the Shah. Once uh, the Shah fell, all of those weapons went into the hands of an enemy. And so we had a new strategic rival that had to be combated. So Afghanistan, from a strategic point of view from the U.S., Uh, From like, you know, whereas Zbigniew Brzezinski and later William Casey and so forth were sitting, uh, they thought like, holy you know, like this is a a new force we have to counter. And what's more, in 1979, uh, the, you know, it was not just in Iran where you had this sort of wave of, uh, you know, um, religious revolution kind of sweeping. In Saudi Arabia, for example, religious extremists took over the Kaaba uh, and they were only dispelled with the assistance of French special forces. They had to like, you know, mop up the blood of the of the of the place. So there was a real I think um, which just all to say that like political Islam was also viewed in that moment as like a really powerful and ascendant force. And so, you know, like a weapon that could be deployed in Afghanistan as it was.
3: Yeah, I will. I I will note that with the um, the taking over of uh, the, the Grand Mosque and the seizure by French commandos, um, there is a lot of funny. Historical tidbits and rumors around that, but that was, it was less a like coherent and broad form of political Islam and more of like it it was sort of like a bunch of bumpkins who they had a cousin who had declared himself the Mahdi. It wasn't as linked to any grand uh, transnational movement, but it, it certainly did you know cause fears within the kingdom. And the the of course funny repeated historical rumor of that is. The French commandos that were sent in to seize it back for the Saudis, that they were forced to convert to Islam to to enter it (laughs) and then converted back to Catholicism uh, after the mission was done. Though uh, people have said that that's uh, made up, I choose to believe it. <laughs>
2: well, I believe that one hundred percent. That's there, like the a, way cooler than the Bin Laden's cover story. Yeah.
1: The um, the the I guess the point of our season is there were a lot of bumpkins, and there were and there were those who were more organized. But everyone could get something out of the jihad against the Soviets in Afghanistan, and that is indeed where uh, I think a hitherto or, or an, an unprecedented level of collaboration began. And to your point, Will, we, we try to make it an angle of this season, which I'm getting in a large part from a scholar named Timothy Mitchell. He wrote a great book called Carbon Democracy. Uh, and he has a chapter called Mik Jihad. And Mik Jihad kind of is this you know, basic idea that you don't need to think about the big secular capitalism and the reactionary militant Islam as, as separate as we all are kind of told to by either side. Um, they do a lot more collabs than they've ever wanted to let on. Well, a point you make in the first episode, and I think like a, an easy
0: shorthand for thinking about this, is that with few notable exceptions, the more U.S.-backed a state in the uh, Islamic world is, the more U.S.-backed it is, the more Islamic it, the nature of it, the state is in its tenor and character. Typically.
1: And, uh, and we point out, obviously, there's exceptions. I mean, Iran would be an Iran, yeah, example. Mm-hmm. However, before that, it was one of the most... Um, closely aligned states in the region with the U.S., and it was the Shah. Um, but even then, we have cooperated with Iran in many pla- in many times and places. Most famously, Iran-Contra was when the Reagan administration got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. But they were also open to going after the Taliban with us once we flipped on the Taliban, or they flipped on us, whichever you want to say. Um, and we're offering search and rescue and uh, full support for the Northern Alliance. They've been funding the anti-Taliban warlords a lot longer than we had. So, uh, or rather at that moment. So, so yeah, but, but in general, you got the Gulf monarchies, you got the Islamic um, you know, uh, states in, in the Middle East and Asia are typically American allies. And it was the, it was the kind of Baathists in Syria and Iraq, um, more the Syrians than the, than the Iraqis. It was um, the um, uh, secular PLO, um, movements like this were were not very friendly to the Americans at all. So we made nice with the with the with with everyone. At, you can go back to the Saudis in the 1930s, you know, when we inked a deal with them. Uh, it's just sort of an undercovered thing.
2: And we also we chose Sunni over Shia, uh, which is a subject that uh, I cover in a bonus interview with Cy Hirsch, because uh, he wrote a really kind of seminal article on this about how like America sort of you know, the, the global war on terror could be viewed as part of how we took this kind of policy even more global than it already was. But, you know, because, you know, Iran, like the main reason that it is not, or not the main reason, but like a a major factor in why it is not a strategic friend of ours, despite it's, you know, you know, religiosity is the fact that it's a Shia state. And if you look at a lot of the different Gulf states, you know, Bahrain, for example, you know, that's like a, like it's a Sunni Arab minority that runs the state where you have a lot of, you know, Shia minorities. And that's a dynamic that can be replicated and is found like, you know, in a lot of places in the Arab world. So there is also a degree to which like that distinction, I guess, just shouldn't be ignored.
3: Yeah. And even in, uh, you know, uh, Gulf nations that have a sizable Sunni majority, there's still a very significant Shia population, um, the, the last accounting in Saudi Arabia, which I believe was like something like 30 years ago. And so it could be very different now, uh, was that they were 30 percent Shia. Uh, and yeah, one of the interesting advantages and you see it a ton in Afghanistan. Uh, it was not the first time that, they, you know, we, we saw this policy from Gulf states, but um, probably uh, the formalization of it. Like with it, with these hyper-religious U.S. allies, the advantage is with that is like you can, especially in a multipolar world, you can uh, send your population of extremely religious or sometimes recent converts or not that religious, angry young men to whatever regional conflict against an enemy that you have no means of fighting through uh, conventional warfare or even conventional intelligence. And that became, it was incredibly useful to the Gulf monarchs and probably even more useful to us.
1: Well, especially us because um, George H.W. Bush was CIA director in the middle of the seventies when after the church committee and, and Pike hearings, you know, there was a real attempt to curtail the CIA's power and scope. And essentially what Bush tried to do, and I think successfully did to a large degree was offshore, uh, a lot of work that he wasn't supposed to be caught doing at that moment or that the CIA guys weren't supposed to be caught doing. And that was for, uh, with regard to Afghanistan, eventually a much closer relationship with the Saudi intelligence. And then eventually the Pakistani intelligence as well. But the, the standing, um, uh, relationship between the Bush family and several families in Saudi Arabia meant that all Bush had to do initially was just call up, you know, the uh, Saudi intelligence head. And they both had, you know, dealings with similar banks and similar similar um, investors and say, hey, we need to be laying low right now, but we're happy to share a portfolio with you guys. And that got us started with a whole lot of stuff uh, that follows us into nine eleven and beyond, you know.
2: And, and you could also think of, you know, we focus on the show on, for example, BCCI, the shadowing. I definitely want to talk about that in a second. Yeah, but it's also, you know, I think a good way of helping it is like BCCI was like the sort of uh, underbelly sliver of like, again, this process where it's like, you know, they're inking deal like the US and the Saudis are inking deals through BCCI. They're also inking deals through David Rockefeller's Chase Manhattan Bank. And there are mm-hmm. a lot, you know, this is a process of. Like this is the this is uh you know this is the seamy underside of a friendship that uh was you know I mean a, 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 yeah just a, a really torrid fucking romance really that began in that time.
0: Uh, well, no, since you brought it up, uh, let's talk BCCI because like when I was when we were plotting out Poppy Part Three in Houston, I realized that like the third part of the Poppy series was very much because we were in Houston. It's about this nexus of like intelligence, the petroleum and banking and finance. And like that, that's what the city of Houston is. But BCCI in general is one of the most astonishing. It is a, it is the 2001 monolith of all, like the, the emperor of all, it's because it's a Pandora's box of like everything evil that has ever happened in the last 40 or 50 years. Uh Could, could you just like, a, a, Give, give me just a brief
2: overview on what who what was BCCI, who was involved in it, and what did it do? So, uh, like, BCCI was a bank created by a Pakistani guy. It's important to say that it wasn't created in Pakistan because there's a lot that remains kind of murky about where exactly it was uh, hatched. But the guy who created it was named Aga Hassan Abidi. And he was this kind of like strange, you know, like it would it would be fair to call him like a guru figure. You can look it up on Wikipedia. He's got some weird speeches. And the bank was set up at the uh, with the assistance of Saudi and central intelligence. And I guess the then incipient ISI to effectively serve as an international clearinghouse for all sorts of different operations that these intelligence agencies were running. It would later emerge that, you know, supposed uh, left wing terrorists, although, you know, probably ops like Abu Nidal uh, were run out of uh, BCCI. But also it's where the Afghan Mujahideen uh, got a lot of their money. And I believe it was was it Adnan Khashoggi who staked it or who just ran it? I forget.
1: Khashoggi. uh, I don't think you ran it, but there's I mean, this is another expression of the safari club. It's like the financial Yes, uh, yes. You know, expression of them. So there's drug running, there's um, mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, um, fees for assassinations, really every criminal act you could think of, as you guys have probably covered, was run through BCCI. But one of the things that was, was the Mujahideen.
2: And also BCCI's customer base was like, you know, this was during a time when, for example, the number of Pakistani immigrants in London were, uh, you know, swelling and in England were too. So BCCI had this really large depositor base that it was able to tap from, you know, these like growing immigrant networks. And uh, so when the bank went tits up, it was a lot of those people who ended up being really fucked uh, because the bank was not actually chartered. It was chartered in, I believe, Luxembourg and the Cayman Islands. So it had this like dual registry. It, it was like, it, you know, they exploited the fact that there was there was nobody at all looking at their books.
1: Yeah, they tried to make it look like a third world... You know, development bank. Yes. It was it was supposed to present itself as as people would say now as a as a woke bank, um, but was in fact uh, you know a, a very shadowy institution. In fact, it was it was a based bank. It was not woke. In fact. <laughs> That's, <right.
3: laughs> That's the B in BCCI is for based. <laughs> based credit and commerce. Exactly. Um, the the sound, um, in, in the Muslim world. They have a term called anti-wokia, that ranges back to the time of Muhammad. Pretty much in the Saudi context.
0: Another huge part of this story is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Yeah. And before I get into this of that, I would like to talk about a few of the sort of American pop cultural understandings of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. They come in two movies that jump to mind. The first of which you talk about in the first episode, of course, Rambo Three. Yes. And you drop the absolute bombshell that this film is dedicated <laughs> to the brave mujahideen fighters is one
1: hundred percent cap.
0: And yes, I I I got hooked deep by that one it was too good we both did we
1: we we all did because i think in our in in our book it's in it's it's in a dedication of our book i know and we try to make a joke about it but uh in doing more research yeah it's a a hoax it was just someone who really nailed the early photoshop i guess because but but we also say the reason it it went it, it goes so far in our in our internet culture in our pop culture trivia is because it it, it is spiritually true that that we all kind exactly. of feel like that happened, but which you you know just didn't happen it's in like, that particular case.
0: You don't you don't need to have the words. This film is dedicated to the brave mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan yeah. to
1: understand that that is one thousand percent the message
0: of Rambo Three.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I rewatched it, and it is uh, it it incorporates a lot of myths at the time that we go into in the show. I mean, th- there's a lot of um, of sort of typical like. Trademark blowback style stuff in there, where we accused the Soviets of doing. Uh, well, first of all, to your point, chemical we, weapons using we, chemical weapons. Chemical weapons. We built a case, totally, totally debunked. Never been proven. Um, we say that they were. I mean, we exaggerated a, a lot of stuff about body counts and things like this. But also, we most of all, and the point we make in our first episode is, it was really a way to both change the sub the subject from Vietnam, which had only really just concluded a couple years before. 79 but and, also
0: flip the myth of Vietnam itself yeah. correct
1: and 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 there's some ways where it's like the the Soviet Union's Vietnam of course i mean they they got bogged down in a quagmire but i mean that's not the only thing that characterizes the Vietnam conflict that's that's a very punchy and um marketable way of putting this in headlines in America and across the world over and over again but it, it, it was also a way to project everything we did onto the Soviets from the get go that they did not, a lot of times, in fact, do. But <sighs> in other ways, it was not a lot like Vietnam. I mean, it, there was no grand theory of, of, of dominoes and what needed to be done in, the, in Asia or the Middle East to communize or to decapitalize the grand chessboard like we were thinking in Vietnam. It was a very reluctant invasion, in fact. And if you remember Rambo 2 uh First Blood Part 2, Rambo, I mean like that that was the movie where we
0: get to win the Vietnam War. You know, he yeah. rescues the POWs, mm-hmm. but the POWs are being held by the like an, a direct intervention of the Soviet Red Army. And like yes. that's the they have the big attack helicopters, he blows that up at the end. But like like you said like the screenwriters and Hollywood or whatever and, you know, the general military industrial entertainment complex was projecting onto the Vietnamese exactly what we were. We would have done in their position, which is directly. Uh, fucking, it, it's, it's really uh, funny.
1: There's a line in Rambo three where Troutman says to the, the kind of grim faced Soviet commissar who's, you know, the avatar for, for, for the USSR. And he's like, but you do not seem to realize I'm providing a way out for us both.
3: You expect sympathy? You started this damn war. Now you have to deal with it. And we will. It is just a matter of time before we achieve a complete victory. (sighs) You know, there won't be a victory. Every day your war machines lose ground to a bunch of poorly armed, poorly equipped freedom fighters. The fact is that you underestimated your competition. If you'd studied your history, you'd know that these people have never given up to anyone. They'd rather die than be slaves to an invading army. You can't defeat a people like that. We tried. We already had our Vietnam.
1: Now you're going to have yours. We already had our Vietnam. Now you're going to have yours. But it's like Vietnam has become a, it's like a proper noun of just meaning things like the war that is a, that either the Vietnam war, the literal Vietnam war or the Afghanistan war or whatever. It doesn't even mean a country anymore. It's like a shorthand by then. And that's what we tried to apply.
3: Yeah. it. I mean, it's, insane to say this about I mean really Vietnam in the first place uh, but like the the attitude of the national security state at the military establishment seems to be like it's unfair for another country to support whoever <laughs> we're fighting
0: yeah okay uh, the, the second the second more contemporary film that I think like covers the same history you're talking about. Is the Mike Nichols, Aaron Sorkin film Charlie Wilson's War? How would you how would you rate the history of portraying that movie, and particularly in particular the characters like Texas Congressman Charlie Wilson, played by Tom Hanks, and the uh, Greek Gus, the CIA, uh, you know <laughs> Afghanistan hand, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman? Uh well how do you guys like having done this whole season uh did you rewatch Charlie Wilson's War or like what, what do you what do you make of that film and what it says about a more tw- contemporary 21st century sort of post-war on terror understanding of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and our intervention
1: in that conflict I chose not to rewatch it uh because life's too short but I but I think that there's probably <laughs> but there's probably a lot of good stuff in there that is true about Charlie Wilson himself and Gus Gavrilakos Greek Gus played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in a great performance by Philip yeah, Seymour he's Hoffman. Fantastic. Uh mm-hmm. but but as he but, never but there and 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 I just I, I think if I recall there there is a lot of the propaganda that you know if it's a good movie I don't really care we were just talking about Rambo 3 it's still a fun movie but I think it definitely has less of an of an excuse to take on propaganda about what the war was really about all those years later than Rambo 3 did in the in the thick of it and I think it was still upholding a lot of kind of bromides of American, you know, we, yeah. we, we had to do this, but I, but then yeah. again, I haven't seen it in a while.
2: I, I didn't rewatch it, but like the movie does not really deal at all with like how brutal the Mujahideen were. Like it really kind of just like lionizes them completely. And then the other thing that it does, um, it makes like the, the Julia Roberts character, Joanne Herring and uh, Tom Hanks, it's not that like it sanitizes or makes them more likable. It's just that like, it doesn't really show you. Uh, I mean, I guess that is sanitizing. Like it doesn't show you the fact that like, they like love general Zia of Pakistan so much to the point that they were like willing to apologize for his, you know, butchery uh, at their cocktail party. Yeah. I, I don't you know, remember.
1: Yeah. I, I don't remember that in the movie, but there's a great bit in, in the book where uh, Joanne Herring, Julia Roberts, character is uh, holding a big, you know, um, a big swanky party to fundraise, basically, and to do deals about this new project of the Mujahideen. And uh, Zia is is there as an honored guest, and she she sort of clinks her her glass so everyone will listen up. She said, "Before I interview our, our before I interview our guests, I just want to make very clear he did not murder the previous president of Pakistan, which of course he <laughs> did uh, in a military coup." And every, all of her uh, all of her um, you know bougie friends were sort of pulling their collars a little bit, thinking like, oh, I don't know if we should have come to this party. Uh, but yeah, they all paid up.
3: He's sort of a Rodney Dangerfield figure <laughs> from Caddyshack. But uh, one of the, one of the, um, I mean, I despise that fucking movie. And even though it is a great uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, I still see it as like a waste of uh, very finite time. Mm-hmm. We have finite time. We had love yeah. for him. But, um, my there's a lot of things i hate about the movie my least favorite fucking thing is at the end they try to reconcile the aftermath of all this and probably the worst set of lines Aaron circuit has ever written <laughs> after you know like they win basically charlie wilson goes wait a minute that we're not sticking around to build schools <laughs> to make them, to, yeah, to, right. to, to, yeah. To, to make them less Muslim. <laughs> well, and then it's, well, and then it's like we, the
2: point of this? Well, and then like we did build the schools, and the guy who built all the schools was just like running a fraud. The Greg yeah. Morton the three cups of tea guy.
1: Well, I'll say this: I don't know if it was Mike Nichols, and and it might have been Tom Hanks. We went on that uh, Hassan show, and I, I said this, but apparently at the end, the plan was to have it show. September 11th, and the plane's hitting the towers. That was, like, in the script. It was Nichols's intention, but uh, either Tom Hanks or someone else was like, no, this comes out in Christmas. Uh, Let's not. uh,
2: (laughs) Yeah, Tom Hanks' CIA CIA handler said, sorry, we can't do that.
1: Well, I mean, like, another interesting
0: detail uh, that the movie excluded was (laughs) Representative Charlie Wilson's prodigious cocaine habit. Is that not in the movie? Yeah, that's not in the movie at all. It Wait, shows what? him catting around, but he is like, he's not blowing rails and like, no, he was way. known, he was nah. known yeah. as cocaine was, Charlie. A very funny audio <laughs> clip from like C-SPAN where some angry constituents just like, buddy, you got a cocaine problem. And, just like, oh. and he goes, "He Charlie Wilson says, I've dealt with that problem about five times now. <laughs> yeah, no, no. He said, he,
2: it, it's, it's the, so the guy is like saying, you know, like we should be, you know, we should have a more diplomatic policy towards the Soviets. And then this guy says, well, and then Charlie Wilson says, well, I'm glad you're not in my district. And the guy says, oh, well, I wish I was. Hey, you still have a cocaine problem? And then, and <laughs> and it's, then Charlie Wilson it's, goes, to, I've been cleared of that. He goes, I say, I say, I say, I say.
1: And he starts just uh, <laughs> foghorn foghorn, leghorning out uh, live on TV. But it's, it's a great yeah. clip. But, yeah, he was cocaine Charlie, and he – He also did a hit and run. I don't know if that's in the movie. Um, (laughs) No, it's not. He did a hit. This is amazing. I I thought all this like salacious stuff was at least part of it, but he, he hit someone in um, DC and then literally was like rushing to the airport so that the DC or Virginia police couldn't um, uh, take him in. And he got on a plane to Pakistan to go do like a, another fact finding mission. (laughs) So he literally escaped.
3: Yeah, that he's all of his like debauchery is boiled down to just like this guy loves drinking champagne in a hot tub. And yeah, maybe yeah, he gets yeah. too much pussy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. That 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 makes sense. And then it's a because I heard he liked the movie, and if you really represented his life, we have some choice quotes even in the first episode. He is first of all, I think he's awesome. Let me just be clear. Like all of that is <laughs> is awesome. But um, yeah, I, I endorse all of that. But 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 yeah. Then of course, the dark side are all the deals he's making. Because though he appeared a buffoon, he was actually a pretty good um, natural politician behind the scenes. And as he put it, he elevated the cause of the mujahideen who were raping their their enemies and their prisoners. Who were? I mean, you have an amazing quote
0: in about uh, from Greek Gus, where he where he. He returns, shall we say, uh, a rather vivid description of, uh, you know, like our allies in Afghanistan. He
1: loves the term cornholing and he had Mm -hmm. reason to use it a lot in his in his (laughs) memoir uh, or his his to his biographer. And yeah, I mean, I mean, it is we go into like the real unvarnished um, portrait of the Mujahideen and we talk about the Soviet brutality as well. And it was a lot like Vietnam, I guess, in that sense, that Soviet troops were
2: just. Yeah, I mean, and and also. And also that like a lot of the violence from the Soviets was just like, I mean, it was bombing. And yeah. like, if you want to like, look at the actual, like Adam Tew's, uh you can just Google it. He did a pretty good, like some of just how much ordnance they drop, but like, that's the real similarity with Vietnam, but that's yep. not what people talk about when they meant to that like, comparison.
1: And I just throw in just that, that the Viet, like the, the Vietnamese resistance, like Ho Chi Minh was not invented and paid by the Soviet <laughs> Union or China. Like, <laughs> yeah. like and, and, and you can see that, uh, to, you know, there's a whole thing you can go into here, but that's a big whiff on, on the metaphor because after the war was over, Vietnam built its own state and, of course, you know, reunified and it has its problems like any developing country but has become, like, a member of nations and all this other stuff. The warlords we were backing in Afghanistan immediately tried to kill... All of each other and blow up Kabul, which was the only place untouched by or one of the only places, one of the few places untouched by the war in the 80s. And then, of course, became Taliban and al-Qaeda adjacent and all this other stuff. So um, there's another real, real important difference in the Vietnam metaphor that people like to make.
0: Another, Another fascinating bit of history that you guys delve into is the events preceding the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which I, like, I don't think a lot of people understand, and yeah. the history of the Afghanistan Communist Party. And also, like, it's rather surprising connections to the CIA.
2: So essentially, the, there, was the, there was a split between the, like, on the, on the eve of the Soviet invasion, what was really going on was that there was a split, and in one faction you had uh, like there was a more moderate wing, and then there was a more radical wing, uh, and the more radical wing was behind this guy Amin.
1: Hafizullah Amin was the head of the um, became eventually the head of the Communist Party of Afghanistan, but for a while he was the number two to a guy named Taraki, who he eventually killed. Um, he was he he was associated with Columbia University because of programs that the Americans would kind of try to um, you know, make nice with promising young students from developing nations. However, the issue is, is that the programs he was a part of uh, and the um, Afghan sort of student society he was a part of while in Colombia were later revealed by Ramparts Magazine and others to be fronts for the CIA. So there's an odd cloud of suspicion around this guy who does go back to Afghanistan, He had been to Columbia twice for two different degrees and then was always the one pushing a more violent and more, um, you know, all consuming. And as you know, you could say like extreme line, whether he was a part of the CIA has never really been confirmed, whether he was an asset, a working asset. We found a really interesting passage in a memoir that a friend of the show, Marissa Shepard, had to translate. In which a Soviet general says, "Here's here's what I saw in the records where Amin was defending himself from his fellow Afghan communists about being part of the CIA. Whether this was like something where he was playing the CIA or he was, you know, using everybody at the same time, we'll never know. But we try to mention other, you know, there have been instances where leaders of radical communist or you know um, extremist parties abroad are not necessarily." Um, free of any association with our own intelligence agency. You have Pol Pot and New Brzezinski, as, as a matter of fact, were uh, in contact throughout the same period. And Mex- a Mexican president was a CIA asset. Uh, Portillo. Uh, yeah, Portillo. So, you know, whether Amin is one of those guys, um, it's an interesting point of intrigue in the show. But he invites, eventually invites both America and the Islamists and the Soviets to kind of do favors for him all at once. And the Soviets' favor was to come in and give him backup against some of his enemies. But what the Soviets do is is to themselves say, this guy's chopping everybody's head off. And w- we just need to go in there and get rid of him because he's as much of the problem as the Islamists. So, and they
0: kill him almost immediately. Immediately.
1: After after, after intervening to, to support his
0: communist government. Yeah, the, they pulled a switcheroo there. Yeah. They definitely pulled a switcheroo there. Okay, uh, you just brought him up. And I definitely wanted to get to this guy. Because, you know, he, he is one of the people most responsible for all of this blowback and is one of the most underrated evil figures in American foreign policy. I'm, of course, talking about the Carter administration, Zbigniew Brzezinski. Could you talk a little bit about this guy and, like, what what led him to adopt the most, like, get Carter and the U.S. government to adopt the most maximally hawkish position vis-a-vis Russia and Afghanistan?
2: Yeah, so I think that the the, the, the sort of easy way to think about how somebody like Brzezinski comes to direct policy is that he was, you know, sort of tarred and viewed as, as, a, as a lib, you know, because he was a socially liberal guy, but he was always this hardline anti-communist. And the Carter administration was, you know, it came into power and had been elected and their strategic vision had really been, you know, sort of oriented around like this, you know, domestic response to Watergate. And so that meant that in some respects that like, you know, Brzezinski uh, leading the National Security Council wa- was pretty empowered to engage in some, you know, uh, extensive uh, funding games uh, as far as policy was concerned uh, to check the Soviet Union. And the Brzezinski, as a you know sort of measure, of course, believed that the Soviet Union's downfall was the overriding necessity for all American policy. Like it was the, everything he believed, everything he understood. And, uh, you know, some people we've interviewed uh, Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould, the way they put it is, you know, a, is that Brzezinski views this as like, you know, uh, like a night, it's a a throwback to like the 19th century as like a means of like countering Imperial Russia. And he, you know, constructed a policy in Afghanistan or helped to along those lines in the 1970s.
1: Yeah. Brzezinski could never get over not only the history between Russia and Poland in his time, but like hundreds of years earlier. (laughs) And he was just absolutely dedicated, fanatical, not even, not even so much against communism, but against what he saw as modern day Russian imperialism, whatever you want to say. And he is unapologetic uh, or was unapologetic about using militant Islam to achieve that goal. I found a funny clip where he's being asked by, and I play it in the show, uh, later in the show, where he's being asked by an interviewer, you know, who's from that region, you've said that the Taliban were sort of small potatoes compared to taking down the the evil empire. Do you still feel that way? And he's unrepentant. He says, oh, imagine if the Soviet Union was around now. Just imagine wh- where we'd be. And he says that they were the ones training all the terrorists. And I guess he's trying to say the PLO and secular Marxist terrorists who would you know, they would hijack planes. It was definitely a, a, a dicey time. But he's trying to say they were the ones creating Al-Qaeda because all these Arab terrorists, I guess, in his mind, were all kind of interchangeable. But in fact, he was the, he was the guy who, more than anyone else, was pushing for this grand architecture of jihad. Is that the same clip where uh, he sort of chides
0: the woman interviewing him? Because he's like... You know, if you phrase the question more intelligently, I, I could answer it more accurately. But yep. when you use terms like "bait," you know it just confuses things. And she just goes, "I'm quoting you directly," and he goes, "I yep. never said I never said bait. I never said we would bait them." There's, into the th- F- there's an history. interview
1: with with a French magazine that he forever once it got embarrassing. You know, after nine eleven, he said, "Oh, that's a very loose translation." But it's like the whole interview is just one long misquote. How did, how did that happen? You know, And then we found talking with people who are uh, you know, on the record or, or um, have done their own interviews with colleagues of Brzezinski that he in private, he was saying that. I mean, whether, he not, whether or not he wants that to be recorded in, a, in an article is one thing, but he could never quite help himself telling people, I did it. I lured them in. I baited the Russians into Afghanistan. And I guess it was a matter of public relations as to whether or not he was supposed to say that um, after 9-11, but he was, yeah, he was insatiable.
2: And it's also a good illustration of kind of how policy in the late 1970s through the present kind of starts to form on a strategic level, really in the executive branch, because Brzezinski sort of famously, like a lot of the CIA guys would like deny that there was any trap or something. And they would say, that's poppycock. We never heard of it. And the way that, you know, Brzezinski, you know, he he, he he didn't need them to know about it. He kept things uh, more siloed in particular and was able to kind of influence policy from the top down in a way that I think, you know, with the kind of like people, I think, think of Kissinger as sort of the ultimate, you know, freelancer or whatever. But I think Brzezinski actually probably, you know, deserves a fair bit of credit for, you know, helping to secretly start what would become ultimately like the largest such covert operation. In the history of the CIA, and probably the history of the whole government,
0: and would this be Operation Cyclone? Correct, absolutely, sir. Okay, let's get into Operation Cyclone. This is essentially Charlie Wilson's War, right? I mean, yes. this was the, our covert arming and backing of the Mujahideen fighting uh, the, the Soviet Army in, in Afghanistan. So, like, what, describe like who, who was involved in Operation Cyclone and what did it like? What did it actually entail?
1: At first, it was a it was a much rougher, smaller, quick and dirty thing. And I think the the idea that it started after the Soviet invasion is still present in in, in a lot of you know vague uh, historical memory. Uh, one of the things Brzezinski said in that interview we just cited was that no, 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 I was doing that way before the invasion, at least a year before. <laughs> but but then even before that, you know, the the sources we tended to find were very insightful. Really argue for. Uh, Almost a whole decade earlier, in the early seventies, because what happened then we won't go we won't go too into it now. But there was a not a communist, but a kind of progressive revolution in which the monarchy was abolished in Afghanistan, and just like the British a hundred years earlier, oftentimes that was like a, a, a progressive who wanted to develop his country more was not uh, was not lining up with our designs or our friends' designs in the region, and so we already were working back then with guys like the mujahideen who will come to talk about Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and Ahmad Shah Massoud in the early 70s not even the early 80s so by the time you get to this turmoil going on with the communists fighting each other and this guy al Amin is he is he on the up and up you know either way he's he's, an, he's 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 a psycho he's he's killing everybody he can the soviets are very reluctant to go in but because of the policy that is now definitely in motion in the in 78 and 79 of basically posing the problem are we either going to let fundamentalist US backed Islamic militants take over, or are we going to let this dictator keep making this country more and more into a crackpot, you know, failed revolution just south of our border? Or, and at the end, this was a real consideration is this dictator going to ally with the US and the fundamentalists? So they kept saying no to troop requests, but eventually, on like, you know, the bazillionth vote, they finally said, this is probably a big mistake, but we just don't have any better ideas. And that really is what American diplomats said they were hearing. And they say, you know, with regret that if we had pursued a more um, conciliatory policy, they don't really believe the Soviets would have invaded, which again is very different from Vietnam. And the two camps in the American government were known as the bleeders and the dealers. Brzezinski was a bleeder. And the dealers were guys like, you know, guys in the State Department, one of whom was unfortunately assassinated in Afghanistan in a very weird and um, intrigue-laden plot of its own that you can hear in the show. But once that guy was dead, once Brzezinski had started to kind of, you know, block out everyone else and had Carter's ear, Cyclone began to grow. And by the early 80s, Charlie Wilson had really been kind of become a CIA asset as a c- congressman because he was working with Gustavo Cotos the Greek guy who had since upgraded everything and they both wanted more guns more more mujahideen and more money for all of this so by the mid 80s now the soviets have for years been trying to get out they tried to go to the UN they've been feeling putting out feelers for Pakistan and the US is telling everyone don't negotiate the mujahideen don't negotiate pakistan don't negotiate and so the stingers start arriving in 86 or something some people say that's the turning point. Either way, it's already been now half a decade that we've said, well, we're done when we say we're done. And so all of the BCCI transactions, all of the eventually legitimate, quote unquote, congressional approvals, this stuff is is turning the war into something that I don't think anyone, including Brzezinski, might have ever thought would be as destructive for the, for the Soviets, but also for regular Afghan civilians. And uh, by the end of the 80s, uh, I think the American calculation was we've we've done our job, um, Leonard Nimoy style. You know, my, my my work here is done, uh, and they and they beamed out. You know, another uh,
0: American demon who figures largely in this story, a, a man who's caused a great deal of bleeding over the course of his career, is CIA director Bill Casey. What was so fascinating about this guy is that he was a a, a knight of Malta, and an extremely conservative Catholic, and like, do you think that like? it was something in his religious background that ca- that caused him to have a certain affinity with like austere Sunni Islam. I,
2: like, I think honestly like, it was being a lawyer. I think that was yeah, it. Really? He was a, yeah, I think it was being a corporate lawyer and then running the sec. And then he was like, you know what we need to do? We need to get some Muslimic style operations in here. And I believe that was <laughs> his takeaway. Let's
1: diversify our portfolio, but yeah, but to will to, to your point uh, Steve Cole, you know, who wrote a great book called ghost wars, Although Ghost Wars interestingly says nothing about BCCI and some of these other things, so it's 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 a slightly incomplete account, or maybe more than slightly. But he writes um, about about Casey saying that Casey saw the Roman Catholicism he believed in and Judeo Christian or whatever you want to say values very much compatible with political Islam as a way to defeat communism. Cause aren't we all basically on the same Godless side? communism. Yeah, yeah exactly. And now that's kind of a, you know, kind of a trope or, 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 a, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, a joke to, to the, to, to, to our generation, the idea, but he was very much about that. And, um, and, you know, it's more clubs. He was a Knight of Malta. Now you got the Safari Club. You know, anyone, <laughs> mm-hmm. anyone, anything where you had to call each other prince or your highness to each other, you know, he, <laughs> he was really into. So it's no surprise he was really into this this covert
0: operation. Uh, how would you describe his career and his involvement um, in, in Cyclone, the BCCI? I mean, his fingerprints are all over all of this.
2: Yeah. I mean, Casey was basically like, so Casey was a re, was really fucking old by the time of all this, he had been in the OSS in the 1940s in world war II. He was, I mean, like really uh, kind of like this, you know, kind of canonical uh, operations, cowboy figure. And so when he came to the CIA, the idea was like, a bit of like, yeah, we want to get the agency to have its mojo back after the 1970s. But, you know, and we go into this a bit in the show, a lot of what he was just doing, I would argue, at least from his, the way he saw it from his vantage point, was he was just trying to kick as much shit up as possible uh, with the Soviet Union and just try and knife them as many ways with as many tools as he had at at his disposal. And so you have some pretty, you know, Arcane and crazy plots, uh, and also Latin America was a major, uh, you know, uh, place of interest for him. But so a lot of the plots, like Iran Contra um, and uh, you know the Army of the Mujahideen, uh, you know, which is a plot in its own right, uh, they go back to you know they, they they are able to be as successful or unsuccessful, but they, they dig on the scale that they both of those things achieved because Bill Casey was cheerleading them essentially.
1: If if Brzezinski is the is the um, sort of cold and calculating architect of the of the policy, at least when it became a true, you know, um, operation that that was supposed to be sustained over years, then when he leaves, you know, Carter Carter gets obliterated by Reagan. Casey, still at the CIA, is the kind of giddy, you know, um, uh, inheritor of it, and he is, uh, you know, just sort of sort of um every day excited about new ways to train these guys in terror and to blow stuff up, bicycle bombs and, you know, all these things. There were there were myths that the Soviets were using that that are still reprinted, by the way, uh that the Soviets were like dropping toys that were actually bombs so they could like literally kill children, which sounds so it's one of those things that sounds a little too evil that you always have to check up on. But what was real what was real was a lot of the um new forms of terrorism uh, being taught to the Afghans um, at the request of Bill Casey and Gustav Avrakotos, and of course Charlie Wilson, but he was also a you know a character that's hard not to find goofy. He was a mumbler, uh, and no one could ever understand what the fuck he was saying. Uh, Reagan was apparently in in maybe some that meeting. Was strategic. Maybe it was because he could he could have you know just sort of working toward the the he mumbler was like, uh, talking like Boomhauer and they were just
0: signing <laughs> off. <Yes>.
1: Like- <laughs> <laughs>
2: Dang old on, uh, stinger missiles. Yeah. Dang old Islam, man. On, stinger Mujahideen, Kabul. Come on, man. It's
3: like this, man. Dust in the wind, man. Or like the dang old candle in wind, man. it don't matter, man. It's like the old oldies, old these old town. You know what I think, man? Like the dang old, I think, therefore you are, man. Uh
1: that's that, that's a wonderful way of putting it. Apparently Reagan was in a was in a national security meeting at one point and like passed a note to, I don't know, some cabinet minister, and after after Casey had finished and it read did you understand one goddamn word he said? <laughs> so, so I mean, he he was a character as as all these guys are, but um yeah, he was funneling and apparently using Catholic uh institutions uh to funnel anti-communist funds throughout his entire reign as CIA director, not um, not just with regard to Afghanistan. Iran Contra, it's important to close out on Casey. It's important to remember this whole season, Iran-Contra is happening as all this is happening. And the bad war, kind of like how Iraq was the bad war in the 2000s in Afghanistan was the right war. In the 80s, all the Democrats were basically against Iran-Contra. They thought it was gauche. They thought it was a little too evil, you know. But the other side of the policy was arming the Contras in Afghanistan, essentially, and that was a right. very popular um, uh, cause
0: was, select yeah, the good, war. The good and, war, you know,
2: and also there was, you know, in season one, we talked about how another, you know, thing we did during that time was uh arm Saddam Hussein. And there were, you know, indictments and prosecutions handed down for that later on, but like, uh, you know, much on a much, uh, you know, they're just historically uh, considered much smaller, but the, you know, all of which is just to say that like throughout this period, you know, from Colombia. To Central America to Afghanistan. I mean, you have just like, I mean, I believe me- Mexican Condor is, uh, is an operation of this. Oh, Operation Greenback, um, which is the DEA beginning money laundering. Uh, but like, it's just, you've got like a really kind of, uh, like the federal government was just doing a whole fucking lot in a whole lot of places. And Bill Casey, in a lot of ways, was like, Sort of the the guy responsible for making sure that each of those endeavors could be as fully evolved a plot, uh, you know, Don DeLillo, Libra style, as it could be.
1: Yeah, his his some of his underlings were like, "What well, what are we really working toward here?" You know, this is you know, they, not to say they weren't cold and calculating themselves, but but they they didn't find all this to be more than just kind of fun and games. But you know, fun and games was Casey's. That was his. That was his deal. He loved it. He was giddy. Well, I guess like. I want to talk about like in, in a way to
0: sort of understand emotionally or metaphorically um, the spread of covert fun and, ga- fun and games and blowback uh, across the entire face of the planet and indeed lower Manhattan. Mm. I want to talk about the brilliant trailer that you guys produced oh. with Ben Clarkson for for this season of blowback, which was like this really. I mean, if, if you haven't watched the trailer, it's an animated trailer for, for season four of blowback done by Ben Clarkson. Uh, Could you describe a little bit about like the concept of that trailer and like the idea that you were trying to communicate and like with, in collaboration with Ben and like to communicate in an artistic, emotional way, like the themes of this season.
1: Yeah, it was, it was very, um, it was very much a collaboration. I think Noah and I just had a call with him and I said, I, I wanted to treat this, um, multi limbed monster of drug money and, um, you know, uh, bombs and instruments of terror, but also ideologies as this one monster to kind of give it this form, like the thing is what I said, you know, something that's constantly changing to its surroundings and growing and squeezing into the corners it needs to squeeze into and then becoming something else all over again. And and Ben loves that uh, whole sort of organic um, idea and so when he when he started to show us sketches and what people can see, if you guys want to throw a link in, and they can see the trailer, he he really took that idea that I just had a vague sense of, and he started to lay out this this little story in which a uh, uh, some kind of you know toxic uh, element is being developed and allowed. I would describe it, was-
0: it. I would describe it like the the. The metaphor, the visual metaphor here for covert action, as yes, Akira goop. Sure, so the the goop from Akira, you know, when he like blows up into a giant uh, and, flesh blob,
1: and 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 I think also it was a little bit inspired by, say, the sentiment in um the the my favorite deleted scene ever, which is that deleted scene in uh Nixon when he goes to see Richard Helms, right? And, uh, yeah, played <laughs> right by Sam Waterston, whose eyes turn turned black. black. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he really leaned in on that one. Uh, yeah. but, but but he he's got his garden. And, um, you know, as they're mugging it up, there is a great line where he says something about how covert operations are organic. You know, they grow, they change shape. And, um, without putting too, without ripping that off too much, I, I I thought maybe not the form of a flower, but this kind of, yeah, this, this thing that's alive. And, um, he just, he just did a fantastic job. Obviously you guys have worked with him, but, uh, I couldn't be happier with, and I, I, I scored the, the, the trailer, um, to, to compliment Ben's, Ben's visuals. And that was really fun. And, uh, it, it just turned out great.
0: I guess like, uh, one of the best things about blowback or one of the best things about studying or learning about history is discovering new guys. Yeah. Learning about guys is like most of what history is. And I've talked about a few of them that, that grabbed my attention in the first couple episodes, but just for you, Brendan and Noah, Do you have a favorite guy from this season or Hmm. someone that you discovered that you weren't aware of before or someone whose story uh, particularly strikes you or or character or personality that you remember from this season?
1: Noah, do you want to take it first? I think I know mine.
2: Yeah. um, I think I, I really like uh, Charlie Flynn. That's who Michael Flynn's brother. So he, he comes in in like the later part of the season, we don't get to spend too much time with them, unfortunately, but like, Uh, If you read Michael Hastings book, the operators or uh, his, or the, his story about Stan McChrystal, like Charlie Flynn just basically sounds like Michael Flynn 2.0. So like, like Charlie Flynn was Stan McChrystal's chief of staff. And he was just like kind of the guy in charge of making, making sure that like, he was just like kind of chief vibes officer. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I was, I, I, I honestly just felt like he was the guy in, in, in this whole thing who I just wanted to know more and more about. Well, the yeah, Flynn brothers, was the, like the, learn- the, exactly the Flynn brothers even
1: being there now that we know what, ha- it's like when you see that like, <laughs> yeah. Juli- like, Ju- like Giuliani was, was <laughs> yeah. going to be offered mayor of Baghdad at one point, And you're like, <laughs> mm-hmm. now, now you're just, it, it hits different
2: as they say. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. That's it. Yes.
1: I, I would say mine is actually a guy named Kofor black. And we've talked a lot about the, um, the uh, 80s in this episode, which is good because, you know, uh, I think people will listen to the show and know, they'll they'll see us, you know, s- sort of crawl toward the 90s and then into the 2000s, and that's that's all in the show. But th- from the later half of the season, Kofer Black was the counter-terror chief for Bush, and he was this beefy, uh, bald guy who, um, you know, whether he whether he was trying to look tougher than he was or he was this big of a psycho, I don't know. But he wanted to literally put bin Laden's head on a stick. And he told, he told his assistants who were on the ground, he's like, I want his head on a stick. And they're like, yeah, but wait, are you serious? And he's like, I want you to get pikes and I want you to put it in ice so that we can put it in a box. And I want to show the president. And so people ordered <laughs> pikes and ice so that they could literally take bin Laden's head and put it in a box, uh, which, of course, they never got to do because for some reason he escaped from Tora Bora. But that guy was uh, – but, but, but that guy uh, – oh, this is, this is another great line. This is what I'll say. This is in Bob Woodward's book, and Bob Woodward is, has, his, has plenty of problems, but he does get some of the uh, local color when you're in the White House. And there's a moment where uh, um, he's talking to everybody, and he's assuring them, like the day after 9-11, don't worry, you know, we're going to go out there. We're going to kill all of them. Um, there, there's going to be fly- – we're going to have flies walking on their eyeballs. And that by the and, end of the day. By the end of the day, and <laughs> Woodward writes that uh, for the for the rest of the time anyone was there, his nickname around the office became the flies walking on the eyeballs guy, and <laughs> that, that, that's <laughs> real punchy. That, it, that rolls off the tongue. I mean, I guess so. <laughs> but but he he was he was definitely a real character. Um, and uh, he he's got he's always the pugnacious the pugnacious guy in the room, uh, especially compared to you know Colin Powell and uh, Paul Wolfowitz. You know.
2: Yeah. Also, it was. A big surprise getting Ashraf Ghani's voice. That was the my other favorite thing. The last president, what he the like.
1: last president of Afghanistan. I I have to say, when I finally put a clip in, he sounds a he's like Warwick Davis uh, <laughs> a little bit. It, it, it caught me off guard.
3: It would it would be funny if that like the order to like put Bin Laden's head on ice and then put it on a pike and deliver it to to the president. They never revised that when Obama got in, and someone presented <laughs> a bungler with Bin Laden's head. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, oh, you know. uh,
3: thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm making love to his body, uh, but in my mind. Uh, this did, uh, his head's did, uh, on else.
2: Do I do I still have to tip if it took longer than uh, 30 minutes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's, but but yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, of, of psychos and and bizarre people. I mean, the, the Mujahideen themselves. People can listen to the show. I mean, there's kind of a flavor for every uh, every tendency you have. There were guys who were really smooth. <laughs> Smooth criminals uh, who who got PR treatment from the West. There were really really nasty guys who kind of originated the idea of acid in the face of women. Um, that was one of our main guys, and there were mentors to Osama. Uh, several of them uh, in in the bunch. So um, yeah, it's hard it's hard to really pick, but uh, that's why people need to dive in, you know, and just just check it out. Well, like I said, um, we
0: we have covered basically just merely the tip of the iceberg of the the. The history that you guys um, lay out on this season—you know, the geopolitics of the heroin trade, yeah—the American invasion of Afghanistan and our subsequent withdrawal. But look, Brendan, no, I'm going to get you out here with an easy question, okay? Mm -hmm. All right, 9/11. What really happened there? (laughs) it the real truth? I knew you were going to say that.
1: That's that 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 is the season. There's there's a lot. Is is there any more 9/11 truth that you guys have uncovered? There's a little bit more truth that we found. We found okay. a lot. Yeah, there's of some truth. truth. Um, there's some truth, and and uh, and yeah, uh, just you have to you have to sign up. But there's there's we found a lot of truth. Um, I guess we will leave it there for today. Um, subscribe to Blowback to get the real
0: 9-11 truth. That's that's the pitch we're going to leave you with. And before <laughs> we close out today's show, I would like to leave you, listener, with a pitch uh, that this upcoming Saturday, September second, you're in New York City, please come to the Roxy Cinema. At 7.15, Hessa and I will be presenting a 35 millimeter screening of Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo. Oh, that's great. right. To supplement our Mo- movie mindset bonus episode, we are hosting a screening, which we'll do an intro and then a talk back after of Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo this Saturday, uh, this Saturday, September 2nd at the Roxy Hotel
2: and Cinema. And actually, we have a plug. Uh, Brendan and I will be in Chicago this coming weekend at the Haymarket Socialism Conference Uh, we will be there uh, we have a panel on Monday on Labor Day and uh, if you are in Chicago, if you're at Haymarket, you should come out and hang, Uh, we'd love to see you there.
0: Once again, thank you so much to Brendan and Noah and we will play you out with some of the Blowback Season 4 original score composed by Brendan James. Gentlemen, thanks again for another season of Blowback and thanks for coming on. Thank you boys Thank you